This podcast is made possible by the support of listeners just like you, or maybe even you, depending on who you are. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, On the Media, The Daily Show, NPR, The Young Turks, and The Show, with a bonus clip today for our iPhone app users from Tom Hartman. I don't want another Oklahoma City to ever take place again. And just as we would not give aid and comfort to Al-Qaeda, let us not allow the words of elected leaders to give comfort and comfortable excuses to extremists bent on violence. When members of Congress compare health care legislation to government tyranny, socialism, or totalitarianism in the hopes of scoring political points, it's like pouring gas on the fire of extremism. That was Congresswoman Betty McCollum of Minnesota speaking on the House floor this week in support of a resolution honoring the victims of the 1995 attack on the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City. The resolution passed. Monday, of course, is the 15th anniversary of the bombing, which killed 168 Americans. On Friday, Bill Clinton will be the keynote speaker at a symposium marking the anniversary. It's an event designed to be a forum for discussing how the country reacted to the attack 15 years ago and what lessons learned from the Oklahoma City bombing can be applied to today's America. On Monday, our next guest, Secretary of Homeland Security Janet Napolitano, will be in Oklahoma City itself for the official remembrance ceremony. Also that day, again, on the anniversary of the bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City by Timothy McVeigh, an anti-government extremist with ties to the militia movement, there will be two marches on Washington. One's being called the Second Amendment March. It's leading up to their, in leading up to their march on Washington, this group has been holding armed rallies at state capitals from Kentucky to Montana to Virginia, uh, anti-government marches and rallies at which participants are encouraged to uh, wear and display their guns. Now, even though those folks have been armed at all the state capitals leading up to the April 19th march, when they actually head to the grounds of the Washington Monument on the actual anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombing, they are not allowed to open carry there. So that Second Amendment march will be unarmed in D.C. That said, right across the Potomac from that site at Gravely Point Park in Virginia, that march on D.C., also on the occasion of the Oklahoma City bombing anniversary, uh, that march will be armed. Participants at that one are being encouraged to bring guns. The organizers are holding it in Virginia and bringing people right up to Gravely Point on the Potomac because they say that's as close as they think they can legally get to D.C. with loaded weapons. One of the speakers at that event, is the, the one with the guns, uh, is the ex-Alabama militiaman who made news recently by encouraging people to go to Democratic Party offices and throw bricks through the windows. Um, one other high-profile attendee of that armed march uh, is backing out now. He's the president of the Oath Keepers. They're a group of pro-gun law enforcement and military personnel who say they plan to disobey orders in order to, in their words, prevent possible future egregious violations of the Bill of Rights and to, again, in their words, stop a dictatorship from taking root in America. The Oath Keepers has pulled out of the armed march on almost Washington, citing published statements by some participants in the upcoming rally that indicate that the event will have a confrontational stance. this Monday, Timothy McVeigh exploded a truck bomb outside the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in downtown Oklahoma City. The blast killed 168 people, including 19 children, and was, until September 11, 2001, the deadliest terrorist attack on American soil. McVeigh had ties to the militia movement and was retaliating for the government's raid on the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas, exactly two years earlier. But before the FBI identified McVeigh and co-conspirator Terry Nichols as the prime suspects in the bombing, many terrorism experts and news reporters speculated that there might be a Middle East connection. 
The first World Trade Center bombing had occurred only three years before, and there was the Bosnian genocide, the ethnic cleansing of Muslims at the hands of militant Serbs and warlords. Views of the American Muslim community were shaped by that context. Reporter Scott Gurian looks back at the rush to judgment by the media and by law enforcement. In the 36 hours following the bombing, the Council on American-Islamic Relations documented hundreds of cases of what it calls anti-Muslim backlash across the country. There were reports of vandalism and death threats. Talk radio callers went off on racist rants, and a pregnant Iraqi refugee in Oklahoma City suffered a miscarriage after a group of people threw rocks through her windows and shouted anti-Islamic epithets. Imad Inshasi, the president of the Islamic Society of Greater Oklahoma City, said, his fear was sparked the moment he heard the blast. I remember very vividly that I was going to the bank to make a deposit at 9.01 where I could uh, hear a very uh, loud explosion. My secretary at that time, she told me this sounded like some kind of a thunder or something. I said, well, having lived in Lebanon, this sounds like an explosion. Governor, describe for us as you walked through the building, what did you see? Well, it's Beirut. I mean, it's, uh, it's just incredible. Sure enough, on the radio, the news was was some kind of an explosion downtown, still not familiar with what it was. And uh, not too far after that, when it was concluded that it was some kind of a car bomb and so on and so forth, the news traveled very fast, and all of a sudden, uh, on the news, they were looking for two Middle Eastern Arabs with a description that fits my profiles, <laughs> and we realized that it was uh, it's going to be uh, troublesome. Three suspects, three men, two of whom are described as Middle Eastern. They're said to be driving a brown uh, Chevrolet pickup. To, uh, the local the newspaper and one of the local television stations by uh, um, someone saying they represented an Islamic group claiming responsibility, but at this point, no official uh, uh, One of the descriptions is a 20 to 25-year-old male wearing blue jogging suit another 35 to 38 years old wearing a blue jogging suit and brown pants, beard, uh, mustache, and from Oklahoma and brown City hair. also said a member of the Nation of Islam claimed responsibility, but that group also vehemently denies any connection with the attack. Part of the reason so much early suspicion was cast on Middle Easterners was the government's detention of Oklahoma City resident Abraham Ahmed. Ahmed was a Palestinian-American en route to visit his family in Amman, Jordan, on the morning of April 19th. He fit the FBI's profile, and the contents of his luggage raised some suspicions. So he was taken into custody at London's Heathrow Airport, sent back to Washington, and held for three days. He had no connection to the bombing, but was portrayed in the media as a guilty man. And I was sitting at home watching it, and I believed it. Imad Inshasi. That I believe my very best friend that I grew up with and I went to college with could have been one of the perpetrators. And then I go back to my sense and said, no, no, there's no way he would do that. But then I'll go back and see some of the news reports, some of the expert reports and some of the media, uh, Channel 4, Channel 5, Channel 9, uh, coming back saying they found bomb making material in his luggage and so on and so forth. So I believe it. It was a very strong message, even to me, who was Muslim and who knew that person very, very, very well that I have believed that he could have have done something like that. So imagine what kind of an effect it would have on a regular person on the street. Ibrahim Hooper is spokesperson for the Council on American-Islamic Relations. After those first initial days when it was thought that Middle Easterners or Muslims or whoever had done it, we saw that when it was clear that that was not the case, it was like a slap in the face for many people. And they recognized that you know, this isn't the way you need to uh, look at things, that you can have domestic terrorism, that people who look like, quote, regular Americans can be terrorists. The FBI says the majority of terrorist incidents and attacks in the U.S. come from within. But as Jim Narikis with the liberal media watchdog group Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting has observed, that runs counter to the media's prevailing narrative, or as he calls it, metaphor. The main metaphors are the invasion metaphor and the infection metaphor. And in both cases, you're thinking of something that is coming from outside the body politic and is entering against your will. And if you could only keep that out, then you'd be safe. There is kind of a xenophobia lying beneath it that terrorism is what you get when you are exposed to the other. And so... The solution to terrorism is to 
have a heightened awareness and uh, a suspicion of the other. In part, it's suspicion of the other that motivates the militia movement, which is on the rise. That's why it's important to remember not just September 11, 2001, but also April 19, 1995. For On the Media, I'm Scott Gurian. April 19th is a day we will have little chance to forget because our domestic terrorists or would-be terrorists insist on reminding us every few years. We decided to trace April 19th and its equally fraught companion, April 20th, back to where it all began. So many symbols twisted into dark narratives, so much magical thinking about a date, starting with one celebrated act of violence on April 19th, 1775. Later, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote, By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled, here once the embattled farmers stood and fired the shot heard round the world. Next notable date for some militias, April 20th, 1889, Hitler's birthday. Others cite April 19th, 1943, as the date the Nazis invaded the Warsaw Ghetto. Yet another instance of government forces marching on the innocent. That the innocent were Jews is not emphasized. Then, April 20th, 1985, 300 agents of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms raided the Arkansas compound of the Covenant of the Sword and the Arm of the Lord, one of the original far-right militias. It served as the model and inspiration for many that followed. Newsweek quoted a newsletter published by the militia of Montana that pounded the importance of April 19th. It was the shot heard round the world, the date in 1992 the militias claimed of an aborted ATF raid on white supremacist Randy Weaver, whose wife later was shot dead by FBI snipers at Ruby Ridge. Well, we couldn't find any documentation of that April 19th raid. April 19th, 1995 was the scheduled date for the execution of Richard Wayne Snell, a white supremacist who, like Weaver, Newsweek noted, was regarded as a movement martyr. Snell, convicted of killing a pawn shop operator, was executed just hours after the Oklahoma City bombing after telling his executioners that they had picked a bad day. But before Oklahoma City, there was Waco. April 19, 1993, the end of a 51-day siege of the Branch Davidian cult by agents of the ATF in which more than 70 men, women, and children died in a fire. Well, as you can see, the parts of the building have collapsed. The fire has indeed engulfed the vast majority of this compound that has been the Bonnie, site. the entire roof is gone. The entire roof is gone. Mike, what else can you yes. tell us? Any uh, sign of firefighting equipment? I know. No, none whatsoever. And it was Waco that inspired Timothy McVeigh, and it was April 19th that he put on his fake driver's license he used to rent the truck used in the bombing. It was Waco and Oklahoma City that inspired Columbine High School students Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris. They dressed in black trench coats. They hated jocks. Today they brought their guns and their grudges to school, then started shooting. Anything in the hands of the unbalanced and disturbed can be dangerous, even a date. April 19th has been anointed a day of remembrance, and it's worth remembering that there are people out there whose calendars are marked a whole lot differently than yours or mine. You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestofleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support. Someone come and take me You are like most Americans, you're watching this show right now in a motel room because you're on the road with the Tea Party Express as it travels across the country to its final event on April 15th in Washington, D.C. But concerns over the Tea Party's image have led some of the event's organizers to send out this email requesting Tea Partiers refrain from violence, profanity, bigotry, law-breaking, drinking, or pre-drinking. <laughs> I have to say, uh, 
This whole event sounds kind of lame now. <laughs> like it's going to be an actual tea party. By the way, if you're sending out that email, could you CC every sports stadium in the country? I'm just speaking as a father who's attended a sporting event with a five-year-old and had to have that awkward, Daddy, what's a blind <laughs> sucker conversation? <laughs> but of course, the Tea Party has a right to be concerned because there have been extremists showing up to their rallies. For instance, this guy right here, the, the, the one with the megaphone, talking. I don't want to make you sick, but I brought an abortion to show you today. Yeah, that's a uh, Louis Gomert of Texas. Uh, he is a Republican <laughs> congressperson. See, if the Tea Party is going to have any kind of mainstream success, it is going to have to distance itself from these Republicans. Here's one excusing the terrorist who flew his plane into an IRS building. I think if we'd abolished the IRS back when I first advocated it, he wouldn't have had a target for his airplane. And I'm still for abolishing the IRS. Oh, uh, uh, nice comment, oh, Steve uh, King Laden. <laughs> <laughs> and the bigotry thing isn't going to go away unless the Tea Party moves away from Republicans on the issue of race. New Virginia Governor Bob McDonnell uh, designated April as Confederate Month. The governor did not even mention slavery in this proclamation. There's this sort of feeling that it's insensitive, but you clearly don't agree. Uh, uh, to me, it's the sort of feeling that it's a myth, that it is not significant, that it's not, uh, it's trying to make a big deal out of something that doesn't amount to diddly. And by the way, Haley Barber isn't just some ignorant, inbred, hick Mississippi governor who only f***s inside when it's too dark to see the gators outside his swamp shack. <laughs> he used to be the head of the RNC, the number one Republican Tea Party. You've got to get away from these people. Meet me at camera three. Wait. <laughs> I think we're being followed. Meet me back at camera two. <laughs> Tea Party, I know it seems like you need the Republicans that they're just an extremely vocal and offensive minority. But the idea of inviting people like that to your Tea Party is preposterous. The Tea Parties are about smaller government, lower taxes. When you get Republicans involved, that's when the crazy comes out. <laughs> and then nobody will take your Hitler-Obama sign seriously. Did you ever have to make up your In the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing, just four days after the bombing, President Bill Clinton, who was then in his first term, spoke at a prayer service in Oklahoma City. I've received a lot of letters in these last terrible days. One stood out because it came from a young widow and a mother of three whose own husband was murdered with over 200 other Americans when Pan Am 103 was shot down. Here is what that woman said I should say to you today. The anger you feel is valid, but you must not allow yourselves to be consumed by it. The hurt you feel must not be allowed to turn into hate, but instead into the search for justice. The loss you feel must not paralyze your own lives. Instead, you must try to pay tribute to your loved ones by continuing to do all the things they left undone, thus ensuring they did not die in vain. Wise words from one who also knows. 
President Clinton also that day addressed the country at large and addressed the climate in which the bombing took place, the movement that the bomber emerged from. To all my fellow Americans beyond this hall, I say one thing we owe those who have sacrificed is the duty to purge ourselves of the dark forces which gave rise to this evil. They are forces that threaten our common peace, our freedom, our way of life. Let us let our own children know that we will stand against the forces of fear. When there is talk of hatred, let us stand up and talk against it. When there is talk of violence, let us stand up and talk against it. In the face of death, let us honor life. Today, President Clinton looked back at Oklahoma City from 15 years distance in a speech that he gave in Washington, and he turned to some of the same concerns he was just describing. We can't let the debate veer so far into hatred that we lose focus of our common humanity. It's really important. We can't ever fudge the fact that there is a basic line dividing criticism from violence or its advocacy. And that the closer you get to the line and the more responsibility you have, the more you have to think about the echo chamber in which your words resonate. What we learned from Oklahoma City is not that we should gag each other or that we should reduce our passion for the positions we hold, but that the words we use really do matter because there are, there's this vast echo chamber and they go across space and they fall on the serious and the delirious alike. They fall on the connected and the unhinged alike. Within four months of the Oklahoma City bombing, Timothy McVeigh was charged in federal court with having committed that act. Nearly six years after that, in June 2001, Mr. McVeigh was executed. Joining us now for the interview tonight is Bud Welch. Bud Welch is the father of Julie Welch, his 23-year-old daughter, who died along with 167 other Americans in the Oklahoma City bombing 15 years ago. Mr. Welch is also president of Murder Victims Families for Human Rights. Uh, Bud Welch, thank you so much for being here tonight. I really appreciate your time, sir. Thanks for having me, Rachel. Over the years, uh, you have spoken publicly about the bombing, about anger and revenge and forgiveness. On, on these anniversaries, do you feel like the country appropriately marks what happened in Oklahoma City? Yeah, I really think the country does. It's, uh, uh, of course, you know, there's less each year, a little bit less, except the certainly the 10th anniversary and now the 15th anniversary. And uh, each year the pain gets a little less, uh, but that's difficult to deal with because you... You know, I always say that when your parents die, you go to the hilltop and you bury them. When your children die, you bury them in your heart, and it's forever. It never goes away. You testified at Terry Nichols' sentencing hearing. You testified against him receiving the death penalty. He did end up getting life without parole. Um, I know, sir, that you were opposed to Timothy McVeigh being executed. H how did you come to that position? I reached that point probably about a year after the bombing, close to a year. Uh, all my life I had always opposed the death penalty. I just thought it was something that society should not be doing. And uh, after Julie's death, I was so full of revenge and hate that I, I had to get retribution in some way. So I was for the death penalty probably for the first year. And uh, after re recognizing that killing Tim McVeigh was not part of my healing process, then I was able to, to move forward. I know that you sought out and met Timothy McVeigh's father um, in, in 1998. You said after the meeting with Mr. McVeigh's father that he was a bigger victim of the Oklahoma City bombing than you were. What, what made you feel that way? Well, because I travel all over the world, I've spoken thousands of times, and each time I speak, I'm able to tell stories about Julie and some wonderful things that she did as a, as a child growing up and, and her education and, and such. 
And uh, I kind of keep her alive by doing that. But uh, Bill is never able to publicly say anything positive about his son, and I've been told by family members that, uh, and neighbors that uh, uh, he was a good kid, he was a good student, and uh, of course he served in the Gulf War and came back apparently with PTSD, and he and Terry Nichols had served in the same unit together. And so I guess that was the, kind of the result of what happened in war. You're an activist now um, against the death penalty. Uh, you've you've called that you've called executions um, staged political events. Uh, what what do you mean by that? And and how do you try to bridge the gap between other people who are families of murder victims who who, who feel opposite than you do to feel the opposite way that you do about about capital punishment? Well, I think the main thing about other family members is. After an execution happens, I think they recognize that really killing that other person is not part of their healing process. We're told that it is by the prosecutors, and prosecutors are mainly uh, district attorneys that are, that are elected. And they have to prove that they're tough on crime. They pound on the podium when they're running for re-election to try to prove that they're, as I say, the baddest ass in the jungle, and uh, we vote for them. And governors do much the same way, except the political issue is not as powerful as it once was, because we're having anti-death penalty people elected to public office now. Mr. Welch, one last thing that I wanted to ask you about, and I don't want you to feel like you have to comment on this if you don't want to, but I would be interested in knowing what you thought about the current political climate. Hearing those comments from President Clinton both now and, and 15 years ago, a lot of people trying to figure out now if there are parallels in today's politics to what was going on uh, in the early 90s. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, my fear is that there is some. And what this reminds me of what's going on now it reminds me very much of the, of the 1960s and the 1970s of desegregation. We're kind of seeing that, that same old ugly head uh, rise again, and uh, that disturbs me a lot. FBI recently arrested nine members of a Christian militia in Michigan, ending a nearly year-long investigation. The two key characters in the case are 45-year-old David Stone, the group's alleged leader, and his son Joshua, who is said to be second in command. The two are now being held on weapons and sedition charges. Prosecutors say the group had hoped to spark a violent standoff with the government and in the process goad other militias into battle. But what makes this story different is how those militias reacted. Instead of helping the group, they played a crucial role in bringing it down. NPR's Dina Temple-Raston reports from Michigan. I'm standing in front of the two trailers where David Stone and his family lived, about an hour south of Detroit. The yard outside the Stones' home is littered with discarded bikes, old tires, and a rusting washing machine. And it's here that the Stone family started a Christian militia they call the Hutari. It's inside these two trailers that prosecutors say the group hatched a plot to gun down a single policeman and then, in a second wave, attack the officers who would show up at his funeral. You just never know when there's people out there that are crazy. That's Angela Case. She's a meat cutter at a local supermarket in Adrian, Michigan, and she lives not far from the Stone family trailers. She heard gunfire out that way, but as far as she knew, there were just a lot of farmers over there. I think everybody thinks that, like, oh, well, they're all, you know, like, they're all, like, toting guns around and stuff, and it's like, no, we're mostly farmers and stuff. <laughs> Lenaway County in southeastern Michigan is farm country, all barns and flat fields that seem to go on for miles. It's also militia country informal groups of heavily armed men who do everything from compass reading to sharpshooting out in the woods. There are dozens of militia groups in Michigan. That makes it second only to Texas. So armed men in camouflage aren't so out of the ordinary. Even so, David Stone and his son Joshua stood out. I think going back a couple of years um, ago, we 
kind of got wind of, of this group and that there there could be issues with them. That's Andrew Arena. He's the FBI's special agent in charge in Detroit. Like any extremist group, I don't think in reality they, they believe that they're going to personally overthrow the U.S. government. I think the, the plan is to basically be the match or the spark to ignite the revolution. About a year ago, residents in Adrian contacted the FBI. They were concerned because David Stone seemed paranoid. Even local militia members were alarmed. Law enforcement officials told NPR a member of one militia decided to infiltrate Stone's group just to keep an eye on him. That militia member became a cooperating witness for the FBI. Now, what we're about to hear is an FBI surveillance tape obtained by NPR. In it, David Stone is speaking about what he sees as a vast conspiracy, local cops joining forces with foreign soldiers to take over the United States. Do I think all the cops out here, were, they would fight right alongside some Chinese trooper? Heck yeah. It's all about power. It's about the, the authority. They see us as little people. The little people, he said. Stone's lawyer confirmed that it was his client on tape. Now, last fall, the FBI says it got word that the Hutaris were building bombs. That's when the Bureau decided to infiltrate the group with its own undercover agent. There was a side benefit to that. The FBI's Andrew Arena said the undercover officer offered to make the bombs. That meant the FBI would be in charge of the explosives. We were very fortunate to be able to insert an individual who was was able to kind of take that role. Um, it certainly certainly let me sleep a little better at night. The undercover agent was the same person who made the recording we heard earlier of David Stone. The tape was made in February while the group was driving to Kentucky to attend a militia rally. Stone had prepared what he hoped would be a rousing speech. He read it to the others in the car, and the FBI got it on tape. Now we need to quit playing this game with these elitist terrorists and actually get serious. Because this war will come, whether we are ready or not. A war of this magnitude will not be easy. But like the rattlesnake on the Gadsden flag, we have rattled and warned the New World Order. Now it's time to strike and take our nation back. The things were in that statement. William Swore is David Stone's defense attorney. Uh, were no more radical, uh, no more offensive or dangerous than anything any of the right-wing wackos on television and radio said the week before these folks were arrested. But the FBI's arena says the Hutari crossed a line when they plotted to kill police. In this country, you can say just about anything you want, but when you start taking action towards that government and you know how you define it, I think every case is a little different. In, in this case, we're defining it as they, they started to plan uh, how they were going to ignite uh, the war. Now, there's one more twist to the story. Four years ago, a man named Matt Servino thought about joining the Hutari, and he talked to David Stone about it at length. Servino said Stone made him a little nervous. You know, you can tell that he was really upset about anything that the government was doing, um, not to the point of saying, you know, let's go do this particular act or something. He would just say something along the lines of, something really needs to be done. These protests, these talking to people is just not cutting it anymore. Something serious needs to happen. So Matt Servino decided to start his own militia instead. Our local unit here in Lenaway, my brother and I reorganized it in summer 2006. So Servino heads one militia in Adrian, and Stone was in charge of another. Then the weekend before Easter, federal authorities arrested David Stone and a handful of Hutari members. Stone's son, Joshua, was not among them. Joshua Stone turned to Matt Servino for help. He assumed Servino would be sympathetic. He asked for assistance, weapon, gears, whatnot. Um, he asked us to back him up to get onto his property. Uh, he knew a back way onto his property. He was pretty confident himself that he could get to some weapons and supplies that were stashed on the property. As a general matter, the perception has been that militias are lying in wait for opportunities like this, occasions when these small bands of private warriors can engage the government and go out in a blaze of glory. That isn't what happened here. Instead of helping Joshua Stone, Servino told him his group was staying out of it, and Servino went a step further. He brought his militia together and... We talked about it. We decided as a group to go to the state police department, this local here in... Talk to them, tell them what little bit of information we had. 
A day later, the FBI arrested Joshua Stone in a neighboring county without incident. Suvino says what the Hutaris are accused of doing is precisely the kind of thing that gives militias a bad name. And he says militias have changed. I mean, it, it, I don't want to... <laughs> the terminology of the old-school militia versus the new-age militia, it, it, it kind of is. I mean, they're just... The way you look at things and the way you approach them is a lot different than it used to be. The FBI's Andrew Arena agrees. Most militias aren't like the Hutari. Well, I think the their reaction to this latest incident with the Hutari, I think that kind of shows what their mindset is right now. Uh, you know, I think they were appalled, to say the least, at the planning and the activities that these, these people were trying to do. That's what makes this story so unusual. Militia groups and authorities work together to break the case. I wanted to start with uh, the story of Steve Cohen. He came on the Young Turks last week, and he uh, made a number of comments that apparently did not sit well with the Tea Party uh, people. Uh, you're going to hear some of those comments in a second. Uh, they were played by a lot of the national media. And uh, he also said, look, some of these, riot, uh, these protests, I should say, got uh, so heated that, uh, that he thought uh, they might be on the verge of crystallized. Uh, it, it's an analogy, obviously. So um, the right wing was crazed about this, and all the big websites on there and Free Republic, Red State, Hot Air, uh, FoxNews.com, et cetera, they all uh, hyped this thing up. And the general theme was, how dare he, uh, when in fact, of course, we are not racist, uh, the Tea Party people are not, uh, and these right wingers are not. And it's a scurrilous charge for him to say that and for him to claim that, you know, we're on the verge of violence. Well, of course, um, great irony, as usual. Well, it's not irony. It's appropriate. That's exactly what Steve Cohen was warning about. Um, someone uh, sent the congressman a message that said, if our tea parties had hoods, we would burn your ass on a cross on the White House front lawn. Now the FBI is investigating that because that's a serious threat against the United States congressman. As all of these right-wing outlets, not just the websites, but as we're about to show you, O'Reilly, Hannity, Limbaugh, etc., are all saying, how dare he say we're violent? Now, yesterday I quoted some commenters from Free Republic. Now, as I explained in that uh, segment, they're just commenters. You can't blame the people that are posting on Free Republic, their, their blog posts, their articles, etc., for the people who leave the comments. People will leave comments. That being said, as you see all those comments that are threatening violence or are anti-Semitic as uh, happened on Free Republic, you can't then be surprised, oh my God, it turns out some people in this movement are racist or anti-Semitic or do threaten violence. Well, it's right there in your comments. Of course they do. Now, that doesn't make you responsible for them. I don't want anybody to mistake what I'm saying there. But you have to be open to that possibility because it's right there in front of you. So now... Uh, not only is the FBI investigating this, uh, but he, Steve Cohen is not alone. Just so you know, uh, first man has been charged with, uh, in the country with threatening a uh, United States senator in these times, within this context. Senator Murray uh, was threatened by a man named Charles Allen Wilson, and he said it only takes one piece of lead. And he apparently told, uh, said to... Um, an agent uh, who was posing as someone who agreed with him, I do pack and I will not blink when I'm confronted. It's not a threat. It's a guarantee. Uh, and he had uh, sent a message to the senator on March 22nd saying, there's a target on your back now. It only takes one piece of lead. Kill the effing senator. Now, that's, uh, now that you've passed the health care bill, let the violence begin. And, you know, you stoke these guys, you stoke these guys, and then you pretend to get surprised. That guy is that upset about the health care bill, that you're trying to provide extra health care for other Americans, so he's going to kill you for that? No, he got stoked by the culture warriors. They're, you know, they're coming against you, and they're going to take away your freedoms, etc. Uh, 
I mean, it got worse. The, here's another message he had left uh, for Senator Murray. I hope somebody puts an effing bullet between your effing eyes. I do believe that every one of you effing socialist, Democrat, progressive Fs need to be taken out. Okay. Now, the AP has expletive in there, so I put in Fs. <laughs> okay. So, uh, and look at that last part of that statement. Socialist, Democrat, progressive. Where did he hear that people who were in favor of the health care bill were socialist, Democrat, progressives? Gee, I can't figure it out. Is anybody on Fox News talking about that? About how the progressives are dangerous and they're socialists? Hmm. And he concluded that note by saying, I want to effing kill you. So, obviously, at some point, a federal agent said, this guy might be very, very serious. So they went and arrested him uh, because he had did a very, he did a crime, a very specific threat. You're allowed to say, hey, I don't like somebody. I don't like that bill. I think it's terrible. You're allowed to say a lot of things. You're allowed to say a lot worse than that. But you can't say, I am going to kill that senator. I'm going to put a bullet in her. That's a threat, okay? And obviously, uh, that is something that can be prosecuted and should be prosecuted. And they're looking into the people threatening Steve Cohen. If you had enough excitement now, From CPR, Continental Public Radio, this is Up to Here. Up to Here, a daily once-over, not so lightly, on the story at the top of what's behind today's news. I'm Milton Getzler, sitting in for Alegria del Fuego Godoy, who's on assignment. No two words sum up the current American political scene better than Tea Party. From the angry rallies last August against the health care plan, the Tea Party movement has grown into a, a large and growing movement, a series of meetings, marches, and at least one convention. There have been several different organizations springing up under the name, including Tea Party Patriots, the Tea Party Express, the Tea Party Revolution, and in Florida, Tea by the Sea. A leader of a relatively new organization in the movement is with us today to get us up to here. James Claypool is chairman of the original Tea Party organization, or OTPO. Mr. Claypool, welcome to Up to Here. Well, we don't trust or respect the mainstream media, Mr. Getzler, but it's a pleasure to be here. Well, I imagine that's more than we could have hoped for, Mr. Claypool. Would it be correct to call your organization a splinter group from the main Tea Party movement? Uh, no, it would not, but... Uh you can go right ahead and slap that label on us if it uh, pleases your paymaster. Well, for the moment at least, we'll call it what you'd like us to call it. We are constitutionalists, not compromisers. We believe in reading first documents literally. Whether it's God in the Bible or the founders in the Constitution, we believe they meant what they said. If you understand the progressive movement, mm -hmm. you understand that interpretation is a Marxist tool. So, so in terms of the political side of our movement, if it isn't in the Constitution... It wasn't put in there for a very good reason. Don't you be interpreting it in there, whether you're a Supreme Court justice or a pundit on TV. Sounds quite fundamentalist. Well, I know you intend that to be a slur, Mr. Gessler, <laughs> but I'll accept that label happily. We, we do need to go back to fundamentals. Uh, what is it you hear whenever a professional athletic team is having a losing streak? The coach says, quote, in our practices, we're going back to the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. You don't hear most coaches being called fundamentalists, unquote. But that would suggest, by your logic, would it not, that sports reporters have different paymasters from news people? <laughs> if that premise wasn't to where I spoke it and what I just said, it would not be suggested. It wasn't suggested. And if it was suggested, it would be moot. You took issue with the health care reform and the bank bailouts. And with the level of taxation and government meddling in our lives. We've lost so many of our freedoms already, and the... 
The plan is just in its early stages of being carried out. What, what freedoms exactly have you lost? <laughs> Are you kidding? The government not only is now telling me I have to buy health insurance, they're telling me there are certain cars I cannot buy. Such as? All those Toyota models they pulled off the market. All that hamburger meat, too. Well, they were unsafe, according to the government. Mm -hmm. And tomorrow they could decide that this program's unsafe. So you oppose all safety regulation by the federal government? You can look in the Constitution until the cows are blue in the face, and you will not find the word safety mentioned once in there, not one time. I will pay $10,000 cash money. Anybody can find the word safety in the United States Constitution. So you, you would have, going back to perhaps the, the first product recall of the modern era, you would, you would have fought for the right to purchase bon vivant canned vicious contaminated with botulism? <laughs> well, I question whether any American would choose to buy a product called bon vivant anything. So, yes, if somebody wanted to do that, I think they should be free to take the consequences. There's nothing in the Constitution about botulism. It's been interpreted in, and that's why we're in the mess we're in today. All right, you're, you're leading a protest against a different government program this week. That's correct. The original Tea Party organization, or OTPO, believes that this current occupant of the White House and announcing a big new program for the space agency has uh, <sighs> he's inadvertently tipped his hand. And, in fact, you're, you're, you're holding an anti-space program rally near Cape Canaveral this coming Wednesday? Yes, sir. It's the Houston We Have a Problem Day, and uh, we hope to be able to claim that thousands of people showed up to demonstrate that we're tired of having our tax dollars stolen to pay for programs that the founders of this country would never have approved. You can't imagine Thomas Jefferson calling for a program to build a vehicle to visit an asteroid any more than you can imagine God waking up one morning and saying, oh, I, I have to bestow some new rights on mankind. I totally forgot about the gays. So you, you think because the words outer space aren't mentioned in the Constitution. Exactly. And so we'll be having some excellent speakers. Bristol Palin has indicated conceptual willingness to attend. And since Florida is an open carry state, we'll be bringing plenty of firearms. You, you said earlier you thought the administration is tipping his hand when the president announced a new direction for the space program away mm -hmm. from moon landing. Mm -hmm. What exactly did you mean? Did any of you folks in your editorial meetings ever ask yourselves, why does this so-called president suddenly decide the moon is off limits? The Chinese are going there. The Indians are going there. What doesn't he want Americans to find on the moon? Now, I don't think any of us knows for sure. But could it be the ancestral home of the so-called Obama family? I, I, I personally can't think of another reason. You, you, to... You're suggesting that President Obama was not born on this planet? No. No, see, the difference between Tea Party people and media folks like you is that I am open to the possibility of seeing things a different way. That doesn't mean I've closed my mind to the possibility that he could have been born on this planet. Mm -hmm. But up to and including this very moment, none of us, including you people, have seen any proof that he was born on this planet. Or if so, you've been deliberately withholding it for some reason, maybe just to keep the subject of his planetary home from even entering the conversation, which is interesting. You think there's evidence of his ancestry on the lunar surface that could be found by astronauts? That's a trick question. Maybe on the surface, maybe buried under the dust. I am not an astrophysicist. I'm just a taxpayer who's tired of being lied to. Finally, Mr. Claypool, some Tea Party organizations have had links to noted Republicans. Some groups have gotten funding from Freedom Works, which is headed by former House GOP Majority Leader Dick Armey. All right, now look, if you're, listen if you're suggesting that the official Tea Party organization, or OPTO, is not profoundly grassrooted, you just may be putting a target on your own back. I I let me say this. Any group of patriots that needs a Dick Armey behind them won't have me standing in front of them. James Claypool from the original Tea Party organization. Or OTPO. Or OPTO. Thanks for getting us up to here. Spacemen came down to answer some things. The world gathered round from paupers to kings. I'll answer your questions, I'll answer them true. I'll show you the way you know what to do. Who is wrong and who is right? Yellow, brown, black or white? Space money answered, you no longer mind. I've opened your eyes, you're now colorblind. Racial, so. Do you remember how 
in the health reform fight, we covered a whole bunch of groups that tried to look like citizen-powered, grassroots, organic outrage, but they were really secretly funded and organized by corporations who didn't want health reform. It looks like that same thing is going on now with Wall Street reform. Meet the old fake boss, same as the new fake boss. That story is ahead. The interview tonight is Richard Clark, the man who was right in his warnings about al-Qaeda before 9-11 and who now wears as a badge of honor the fact that Dick Cheney tried to blame him for that attack after the fact. Plus, we will meet the Senate candidate who wants to pay doctors in chickens. And the Supreme Court of the United States, um, spectacularly uninformed and depicted by finger puppets. That is all ahead this hour. But first, about a week ago, the New York Times published a poll of Tea Party participants across the country. We do not spend a lot of time talking about polls on this show, especially polls of social movements that don't have formal membership and are pretty loosely defined. But, but there was one thing written up in that poll that has stuck with me that I can't really get out of my head. Uh, this is from the end of, of the New York Times synopsis of their findings. Nearly three quarters of those who favor smaller governments said they would prefer it even if it meant spending on domestic programs would be cut. But in follow-up interviews, this I cannot get this out of my head, Tea Party supporters said they did not want to cut Medicare or Social Security, the biggest domestic programs, suggesting instead a focused on, quote, waste. <clears throat> That's a conundrum, isn't it? Asked Jodine White, age 62, of Rockland, California. I don't know what to say. Maybe I don't want smaller government. I guess I want smaller government and my social security. She added, I didn't look at it from the perspective of losing things I need. I think I've changed my mind. Right there on the spot, talking to the New York Times pollster. It's sort of perfect, isn't it? Whatever you think about the Tea Party protests and their tactics, now they get their message across. This right here has been one of the persistent centrist and liberal critiques of the Tea Party movement and this whole Obama-era anti-government uprising on the right. That sort of blatant, clear-as-day contradiction. Get your government hands off my Medicare. Get the government out of my life. Don't touch my Social Security. These are not apocryphal stories. I mean, made up by liberals, right? This lady really is wearing a taxpayer revolt t-shirt while holding a sign that reads, don't touch my Medicare. She's not a staffer on the show, we did not make her up. This guy uh, really did direct people to throw bricks through the windows of Democratic Party offices to protest there being too much government while he is living on social security disability payments, which you might know are from the government. It's a contradiction that's present even in the way these folks choose to articulate their protest against the government. For example, the, the, the march on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., which even while it's being used as a staging ground for anti-government protesters, is a government-funded national park. Protesters last week inveighing against government encroachment on private property while standing on probably the most famous piece of public property in America. It even has a commie-sounding name, the Boston Common. Common, get it? One of the country's oldest national parks. On Monday, anti-government protesters showed off their right to bear arms in a government-funded state park in Virginia. You might remember when Tea Party folks converged on Washington, D.C. for the big 9-12 anti-government march last year. In addition to using a national park for the site of their protest, one of the great footnotes to that protest were the complaints by many 9-12 protesters that the public transportation system that they used in D.C. to get to their anti-government march, they didn't feel was up to their standards. Uh, here's how we covered it at the time. Occasionally you come across something when you're reading the news um, that can't be improved upon with comment. So here without comment is from today's Wall Street Journal. Quote, protesters who attended Saturday's Tea Party rally in Washington are unhappy with the level of service provided by the subway system. Republican Congressman Kevin Brady asked for an explanation of why the government-run subway system didn't, in his view, adequately prepare for the rally to protest government spending and government services. Seriously. That's not me saying seriously. That's in the Wall Street Journal.
The ostensibly principled position these folks are taking is that they want smaller government. They want government to do less. And just because so many of them are retired Medicare and Social Security recipients who get to their protests in national parks via public mass transit, don't let that get in the way of their anti-government message. When you are shown to demonstrably not believe something you say you believe, that's hypocrisy. And reasonably speaking, it should undermine your claim that you're acting on principle. You can't say you hate government-run health care, for example, and then profess your love for Medicare. It is one or the other, you, or you don't make any sense. In the case of the Tea Partiers, though, mainstream media coverage has been willing to almost assume that they're making sense, even in the face of evidence to the contrary. Because the idea of being in favor of smaller government, the idea that government is inherently wasteful and incompetent and should be shrunk, because that idea has shifted from a conservative movement talking point 30 years ago to centrist beltway common wisdom today, sometimes we don't even recognize the hypocrisy when it's right in our face. The conservative movement won the framing fight. It doesn't sound crazy anymore to rail against the federal government while standing in a national park until you really think about it. I mean, imagine anyone protesting in favor of government. Imagine for a minute if people were actually out there protesting for government not to go away and shrink, but to be better, to stay the same size, or maybe even to do more. Imagine if people were protesting against cuts to government that were gonna hurt their quality of life. It might not get as much airtime as the Tea Party anti-government protests, but that is, in fact, some of what's going on out there in America right now. If you were in Atlanta, Georgia today, you might have seen big mass transit buses and trains marked with giant red X's across them. Every bus or train with an X on it represented one that's scheduled to be cut from service as a result of the Atlanta transit system's massive budget deficit. The X's were drawn on by transit employees. In Cleveland, Ohio yesterday, hundreds of people jammed into a crowded school board meeting to protest that city's decision to lay off more than 500 teachers in order to make up a $53 million dollar deficit. That decision is going to result in a 40 to 1 student to teacher ratio in Cleveland classrooms. When does money precede education of our children? In Springfield, Illinois today, thousands of people marched on the state capitol to argue, get this, to argue in favor of a tax increase in Illinois. In favor of a tax increase in Illinois so that cities in Illinois do not see the same type of teacher layoffs and mass transit cuts that places like Cleveland and Atlanta are already experiencing and already protesting. At the Save Our State march today in Illinois, people reportedly chanted to their lawmakers in unison, show some guts, show some guts. Similar protests have taken place in the past few weeks in places including Burbank, California and, and Greenville, South Carolina. These are Americans who are arguing that what the government provides is important and they don't want it to be taken away. And they're arguing that when government has to be cut for financial reasons, there's real pain caused by that. Essentially, the people really need what government does. It's sort of the un- Tea Party, the anti-Tea Party, the anti-Tea Party? <laughs> Probably never going to catch on, even if the protests do. It doesn't necessarily fit the national media narrative that everybody hates the government now, but this is happening. It's a real thing, and it should be reported on, too. A very merry and birthday to you, to you. A very merry and birthday to you, to you. It's great to drink to someone, and I guess that you will do. A very merry and birthday. The conservative Tea Party political movement that's been, if not sweeping the nation, certainly sweeping the nation's news coverage, is doing that because it has everything the media loves, from charismatic leaders, backseat president, to middle American Main Street cred, from colorful costumes to a compellingly divisive narrative, and of course the occasional idiot. Obama lied, our country died. Obama lied, our country died. Worst Dr. Seuss book ever. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. That's truly really the second worst. 
every night before my kids go to bed. <laughs> Read them green eggs and anal warts. Good night, sweetie. Well, uh, today, April 15th, tax day, was the culmination of the Tea Party Express tour, which climaxed with a massive rally today in the nation's capital. I wonder which aspect of the movement the media will focus on. The Tea Party movement voices its outrage. You don't normally see this sort of vim and vigor. What can we expect from the Tea Party rallies? Are we expecting them to get a little rowdy later today? What do the Tea Partiers really want? Has it been peaceful and any kind of sign of the crazies running around? Any sign of the crazies? Yeah, uh, there was one gentleman I saw earlier doing this. <laughs> Eleanor Roosevelt stole my hat! <laughs> you know, to highlight just how difficult it is to pigeonhole the Tea Party movement, today a New York Times CBS poll came out that finds Tea Party supporters are generally wealthier and more educated than the general public. A fact their sponsor, Fox News, was happy to report Although the same poll found that more than half believe that too much has been made of the problems facing black people, and nearly one in three thinks President Obama was not born in America. Facts that Fox chose not to report because it's not information you need to decide. But, oddly enough, when it comes to stereotyping an entire group based on its most extreme members, I have to say I find myself in agreement with this sentiment. You cannot demonize any organization by the actions of a few in a demonstration. They're trying to marginalize them and smear an entire movement of great Americans that are expressing their views. Now they're tarring the entire sure. Tea Blowing Party movement up and, and the and, Republican right. Party. Bernie Goldberg is right? <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> Bernie Goldberg is right! When you generalize, you make a gen out of... The point is, don't do it. <laughs> Well, unless the group you're generalizing about is actually guilty as charged. This idea that that whole middle of the country is made up of, of sort of jerks, you know, that's, that's a democratic thing. That's a liberal yeah. thing. Yeah, exactly. Bernie Goldberg is right. Democrats and liberals all believe the whole middle of the country is made up of jerks. <laughs> See, that's what we call a fair generalization. <laughs> By the way, the anti-generalizers at Fox want you to know that generalizing is the least of the liberals' problems. The left in this country is invested in American defeat in Iraq. Liberals see just about everything through the prism of race. The left always paints Christians as hate mongers. Yeah. The far left does not want the USA to defeat terrorism. The only type of dissent that the left tolerates is their own. The left really wants to just go to nationalizing the banks. This is what liberals do. They're always trying to expand government. The liberals and socialists want to give everybody everything they want. They want Washington to have as much power over you as possible. Liberals don't have five kids. One of them has Down syndrome. Liberals certainly don't allow that to happen. <laughs> You know, I, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Go f yourselves. <laughs>Thanks for listening, everyone. So this show went a little bit long, really for no other reason than that I couldn't decide what to cut out. So I just didn't cut it. I let it run a little bit long, and uh, you, you all get a little uh, bonus time in, in your show. So in return, I'm going to keep this really short, and I'm going to use my short amount of time to make an announcement that will be relevant to an extremely small percentage of you. This is a really last-minute plan I made, so my apologies but I'm going to be in Chicago this week, and that's not really a last-minute plan. last-minute plan was to organize a listener meetup. So if you downloaded this show almost right away and you listened to it almost right away and you live in Chicago and you're not going to be busy at 7 p.m. on Monday, April 26th, and even though you're not busy you think that meeting up with me and other listeners of Best of the Left is something you would want to spend your time doing rather than, you know, anything else that you could be doing, then in that case, in that extremely small percentage of you that that applies to, 
then you can meet up with us at the Tavern by the Park. Details on that establishment, I think, are at tavernatthepark.com. And I will be there Monday, 7 p.m. in Chicago, unsurprisingly, right next to the park. The big park with the big silver jelly bean, that whole thing. So come down, have some drinks, have some conversation, meet some fellow no-good libs, and it'll be, uh, you know, fun times for all. Now, just real quick thanks to members Daniel J., who signed up for his uh, yearly membership on October 3rd, and Nicole P., who signed up for a monthly membership uh, back in January. Huge thanks to both of those members and all the members who make this show possible. Of course, members not only feel good about making this show possible, but they also have access to the special Best of the Left raw feeds, including video content, audio content, and even just bonus content that never ends up in the show, stuff that would just normally be on the cutting room floor. And now for all of you, without exception, please consider supporting the show just by telling anyone and everyone you can find about it. Just spreading the word about the show fundamentally helps and really, really makes a big difference. If you want to stay connected to the show between episodes, you can do that at Facebook or Twitter. In fact, if you had, you might have gotten the notice about that meetup in Chicago. There you go. Benefits of Facebook right there. For all the details about the show, including links to all the sources and all the music used in this and every episode, all of that's always listed in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of the DC Beltway, my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you 10 times a month now, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Black black and Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Take you out in the open door This is not my life It's just a fun farewell to a friend It's not what I'm like Hi, my name is Mike. Can I have your ears for a real short rant? This message is totally unsolicited. In fact, the only way you could be hearing my message right now is because Jay heard this very same recording and gave me a little space. So, thanks, Jay. Hey, talk about penny-pinching in this economy. I've whittled down a normal middle-class existence to my current bare-bones income, and I do it on early Social Security retirement. That's 25% less than regular Social Security. $5 is a lot of money to me, but I consider it important enough to give those dollars to Jay every month to further his great program, the twice-weekly Best of the Left podcast. So if you could possibly squeeze a subscription into your budget, do it. Hey, if I can come up with a fiver every month, I think most people can. And if you can't, keep listening, do those free things that Jay asks you to do, and then subscribe when you can. Thanks.